0: welcome to creation conversations with joe hubbard and john Mackay. join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the bible creation and noah's flood we hope you enjoy the show
1: Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. We've got a good number of us here tonight for this uh, Q&A special. We've, of course, got John McKay, we've got Dr. Eager, we've, of course, got Sam, and we're also joined by our Creation Research Tasmanian rep, uh, Craig Hawkins, as well. And you've actually been on the show before, haven't you, Craig?
2: Yeah, once before with you, Joseph, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was it was good. It was good. Um so as you as you all know, this is our QA special. So we'll be dealing with questions that not only come in tonight from some of the stuff we've been talking about, but also questions from the past that have been given and haven't had a chance to uh, get around to dealing with. Um, there's been some really interesting ones come through, so we'll be talking about them tonight as we get on a little bit further. But do remember to send your questions in tonight. This is the time to do it. Uh, any questions about... Our- well, any topic in general, really creation, evolution, the Bible, uh, fossils, millions of years, all of that kind of stuff. You know, the kind of stuff we deal with. So send your questions in. It's a Q&A special. So keep them coming. Um, all right. Well, shall we start, John, with uh, a bit of a ministry update from you and I before we go on to our museum feature and we get uh, Craig to talk about some of the fossils he's been finding. So what's it been like in uh, Australia recently for ministry? Well, uh, just yesterday
3: from 9 a.m. through to right now at my house, we've had 250 milliliters of water. Uh, I'd say by the time I went outside after this show, it'll be 260 or 270. So we are wet. Um, Well, fortunately, um, the water hasn't come in the house yet like it did last time. Jurassic Arc is a little bit behind us in terms of water, but it's totally cut off, but no damage at all. So... Thank you, Lord, for the rain. We'd appreciate a little bit of dry now to catch up with things. We've got a work day on Monday with some of our student volunteers coming, uh, geology students from the university. So we're looking forward to a dry work day of training these young men. So that's about where we're at. Last week, I asked you to pray for my wife. Uh, She's now out of hospital. She's still a little bit woozy. And uh, I guess having a a gangrened gallbladder removed uh, is going to create some Uh, you know not too long term but um, rather difficult uh, situations to deal with so thank you if you prayed for my darling wife her name is Anne and uh, she's now down fast asleep she's sleeping a lot in this last week and a half but that's one of the best cures that there actually is I'm pretty sure God built that in even before sin came onto the planet and at the personal level I thought i'd just show you one fossil that in the last week or so of cleaning up things uh, our assistant trish has actually uh sorry uh, ter- uh karen is our new assistant in the fossils and uh, look what she's been playing with okay can you see that there it's in layers uh it's a thing and uh, if you want it, it's latin name stromatolite okay it's a layered thing but as to what it is The reason we have this one is it's unusual. A bit of the layer at the top has broken off. Can you see the unusual structure underneath? Now, this is, I picked this up just west of Alice Springs. It's supposed to be 800 million years old, plus. Uh, A a couple of years since i picked it up, of course (laughs) But you might want to ask questions About the age of things today You might want to ask about Do stromatolites prove when the flood happened Or didn't happen That's what tonight's program is about One thing you might find interesting We now know that stromatolites make glue Uh, They make glue That's sort of a calcium carbonate glue And they glue all the particles around them together So they build up and build up they are a living rock. Yep, you heard me right. They are a fossil while they're still alive. And they're a fossil when they're dead as well. Lots of interesting things out there and it's been a real help in understanding our processes. The bacteria in the stromatolite actually make the glue just as we've discovered they do for the stalactites in our stalactite machine or in caves. That's sort of a, a pretty good update from my end, uh, Joseph.
1: Am I right in thinking John that that stromatolite is the one that we picked up from um our Alice Springs way?
3: Yes, you're exactly right. And and you could drop the word we because I don't remember you picking it up, but you were there. So thank you Jason, and we only have one so I can't give you your half yourself.
1: No, I know, I know, yes. I was in a different vehicle, wasn't I? We I mean, we um I was along was that the same the same day that we uh, we saw that wildfire, the bushfire going through as well, I think. Yes.
3: Yes, it yeah, was, fun so. times.
1: Pretty, Pretty cool. Has uh, by the way has for for the other guys on the panel has John frozen for anybody else? Yeah, uh, no, yes, not not yeah. for me. No. Oh he's no, scared. no, he's moving now. He's a bit juttery, but he's uh... okay because he's free- he free- he's freezing for me unless I put him in full screen. But uh, if it's working for some other people, we'll just carry on and hopefully the uh, internet connection will uh, sort itself out as we go. All right um well a brief update from me then um it's been uh, a bit of a tough week and a half for a whole number of reasons um mainly to do with the fact that we've had what is it four storms now in the space of a week and a half so that's been a rather interesting uh, uh, uh issue with where we live and uh with, uh, with the officers and everything else as well so pray much for that and yes we do need your support and thank you very much for all those who do support us um, we very very much appreciate it um, I've been all over we've been dealing with fossils and some other stuff as well we've got some brand new fossils which we'll show in our feature in fact let's uh, bring them in and um, have a look at one or two of them Um, This is one I was just sorting out some stuff in the museum this afternoon, and I found this fossil, which I knew I had, but it's the first time that I've properly uncovered it and had a look. It's still got the label um, from the dealer where I got it from. It's a carpoid assemblage. Now... I can almost guarantee you that a non- most of you probably won't have heard of what a carpoid is before. It's a rather interesting fossil. You've got the big uh, body of the fossil down here, you've got a big tail-like structure that comes up here, and you'll notice that all of them are all slightly different shaped. None of them are actually uniform. Now this is a particular type of fossil which is in the same family as sea urchins and the same family as starfish. They're called echinoderms. Now, One thing that's particularly unique about carpoids is that they, unlike every other, uh, you know, relative or group of um, echinoderms, they are not actually symmetric. Uh, You think of a starfish, right? It's symmetric. It's got five points of symmetry. No matter where you cut it at those five points, it will always be the same on the other side. It's exactly the same for a sea urchin. It's got a five point um, symmetry. These creatures don't. Now, they're quite rare. This one came from Morocco, and so it's quite cool to have it in the collection, and some quite nice sizable ones there as well. So that's a rather interesting fossil to be able to get in a little bit deeper. It's another one of those strange little fossils, a bit like John's uh, stromatolite, his layered thing. But this is the other fossil that I wanted to talk about. This is, uh, well, it's not technically a fossil, but it is a cast uh, of a fossil. Some of you may actually recognize this. This is the famous Lucy, Australia afarensis. Afrohensis. Now this is a, uh, a, a model, it's a cast, but what they've rather helpfully done is actually tell you which parts of these uh, skulls they actually found. You can see the darker patches, yeah? That's how much of this skull that was actually found of this creature. Of course, it's gained a bit of uh, popularity as being a missing link, or it's now considered part of um, human evolutionary timescale. But Diane, if I could bring you on the screen, and because uh, you're a medical biologist, so you're far more qualified to talk about this kind of stuff than I am. What are your thoughts on Lucy and missing links and all that kind of stuff?
4: Uh, well, first let's talk about its name, Australopithecus literally means Southern ape. It doesn't mean it was found in Australia. Uh, it was actually found in, in Africa. Uh, so it just means Southern ape. Anything, any fossil that you see labeled something or other pithecus means an ape. So the professional fossil hunters and paleontologists who named this thing admit it was an ape. But the standard story you will see in the popular media is that this was a human ancestor. And somehow, in between apes, as in chimpanzees and gorilla like creatures, and people, there was this thing called Australopithecus. Now, in the professional literature, people don't say that that is actually a direct ancestor of human beings, but it was somewhere in that period where things were evolving into different human like. Specimens. Uh, but in the popular literature, it is called a human ancestor, so we need to deal with that. Now, um, as you saw from the specimen that Joseph just held up, they didn't find very much of its head. And yet, if you see any of the um reconstructions, they always have uh a, a body with a head, with, you know, fully um with full flesh and everything, as if they have found the entire creature. In fact, what they have found are a whole lot of fragments and most of the rest is just imagination. Even amongst the other bones, they haven't found any full intact bones. So these are all reconstructions made out of bits and pieces um, and they've put them together with a lot of imagination. And I did notice last time I was in London they have a um, very good display in terms of the professional level that it's presented at the Natural History Museum. I don't agree with the, um, the, the message that they're trying to get across that. But they have been careful to show you what was actually found in terms of what was dug up out of the earth and what the reconstruction is so that you know how much of the original was actually dug up. In a lot of these skulls, not only the Lucy skull, but a whole lot of other ones that are also called Australopithecus. And none of them are a complete whole skull. They're all fragments that have been put together. So keep that in mind. No one ever finds an entire skull, and certainly not an entire body. And anything that is called something or other Pithecus is just a very dead ape. And. Uh, <laughs> So um, it's not a human ancestor at all. There, there is no evidence to link this with humanity um, or with any other apes actually. It, it's just another kind of ape.
1: Great stuff. Thanks for that, Diane. Well, there's our, a couple of interesting museum features for this week. But um, Craig, you run the uh, Creation Museum, the Creation Discovery Centre <laughs> down in Tasmania. Um, John, maybe you'd like to introduce Craig and uh, a bit about the uh, how you, we've got involved with Craig and everything. And then uh, maybe Craig would like to show us some pictures and uh, tell us a bit about what you've been finding.
3: All right. Um, got to meet Craig long, long, long time ago. Uh, he was still a student in those days and uh, we've been pretty uh, pretty close friends uh, for quite a long time and uh, he found the whole uh, idea, teaching, evidence of creation really helpful in his academic career. He uh, first of all went into forestry and uh, then he's been very helpful with our Jurassic arc, setting up the uh, trees and giving us advice on why we were struggling to grow gum trees <laughs> <laughs> in australia at jurassic Arc. good good work there craig they're doing much better now uh, but craig also and uh the team down there in tasmania you can tell us a bit about them have set up the creation discovery center and just in the last couple of uh, months have been engaged in a, a project to actually put a fossil display of tasmania dealing with creation and the flood and in fact that's probably enough introduction for me craig take it away show us some of the things you've found in the past uh, few weeks and, and give us a bit of a rundown
2: yeah okay well hello everyone it's nice to be with you and um yeah the creation discovery center in tassie was just a a bit of a dream that we had for quite a few years and it's it's finally come together it's not a great time to open any anything really in a pandemic but we've done that and um uh, volunteers have helped man it and it's been open to the public we even had uh, one chap just say in the last week or so um that the discovery center uh changed his life so um that that was fantastic that's the sort of thing we want want the place to do and um yeah the the, the display for Tasmanian fossils is uh it is is quite exciting for us I'm, I mean i as John said a uh, Forester by background, not a not a fossil hunter, but there's a number of us that have got a bit of fossil fever now, and we're hunting around Tasmania for various fossils. Uh, Joseph, um, how do we get that screen up now?
1: Right, the screen we'll is up on the uh, screens up on the thing now. There you go.
2: Okay, so I really need to probably well I'll start with that one. Um, that that those fossils there were found at uh about 700 meters elevation in tasmania so they've obviously lifted up a lot from uh, ocean levels and there's some fantastic um, shelled creatures uh, and there's probably a, a gastropod down there in the bottom right hand um, side of the left left side picture uh, so they're um they're in absolute enormous quantities. Um, we found a, a, a band of, of sedimentary rock there that must have had tens of millions of these fossils through through them. So that's the sort of scale we're talking about. Um, obviously, there's a scallop shell, remarkably similar to a scallop shell today. Um, here's some of the, the guys that uh, were helping us. Um, Carl and Robert, and there's one of the, the fossils that they uncovered. And you can just see the mishmash of, of creatures throughout it, and, and, and there's just just millions of these things throughout the area. And you see in the background where the, the fellas are, that's uh, for, for you Northern hemisphere watchers, um, that's myrtle forest in the background, a bit of a, a snow grass plain in the foreground, but in the background, that's uh, Nothophagus forest or or Southern southern Myrtle. And it's up in the Highland area. Some of you would know the Cradle Mountain region, uh, uh, a World Heritage area down here in Tasmania. These are some of the fossils we found in a completely different area of Tasmania just yesterday. Um so the one with the ten cent Australian ten cent coin on the left there that's the working muscle of a, a brachiopod that's fossilized, and just the fact that that fossilized uh, demonstrates that it was buried very quickly and very soundly and then then is fossilized from there. The one on the right we're not absolutely certain of uh, maybe there's some people out there that can can make some suggestions, but we're um Uh, We're we're heading down the the line that it's probably some fragments of coral that uh, we found in Permian mudstone, mudstones and shales in a quarry.
3: Now, Craig, Um, can I interrupt here at the moment because remember we uh, did a field trip over towards Elephant Pass and we showed it up in the video, Darwin on the rocks. You may remember doing that. So, folks, if you want to see some of these fossil areas uh, for yourself, you can take away, you can download that as an MP. Uh, what is it? MP4 file uh, off our website. I'm sure Sam will put that up there. Go and click and uh, and download those. They're great material. But the point we were making in that video was that this is just an extension of the same fossils that we filmed in New South Wales and showed you the size of these deposits. And part of what you're doing, correct me if I'm wrong, is not only showing what fossils are there, but the continuation of these beds on a huge scale. Correct?
2: Yeah. Well, what I'm finding um, particularly interesting is just how vast uh, the amount of buried marine fossils there are across Tasmania, and um, as as you've taught us, John, that th- this extends right up the coast of Australia, which which is just an astronomical amount of of um buried marine creatures and um they're all very similar i mean you get these brachiopods you get the corals you get um you know some of these uh, 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 scallops and and gastropods and so on that are just occurring right through in in very similar strata up an enormous area and um, i think
3: when we first met one of the programs i developed then was called the world of living fossils which is The reason why i no longer believe in evolution the brachiopods if they're still here they look the same any that aren't have died out have not been replaced by any new evolution they've just gotten fewer and fewer living species the same is true for the scallop shells you've got in your uh, tasmanian museum a beautiful big scallop remember we got that up just on the edge of the highlands and then the same rocks and they are identical to modern scallops there isn't the slightest evidence in your Tasmanian fossils or our mainland Australian fossils of any evolution. And uh, talking about Australia, thank you, Diane, for reminding us that Australopithecus was not found in Australia, but the root words of those two names are the same. A-U-S-T means southern, right? So that that's when Matthew Flinders called it Australia, Felix, he was talking about a southern land. We are the bottom of the world in terms of north and south and things like that and and craig's even further south um anything else you've got on that report craig well it's just another little coral fragment there if you can see that
2: yeah,
3: yeah we can now folks are in tasmania because i believe you guys have just opened up you no longer have to be double backs to enter tasmania correct
2: uh that's correct yeah i think i, I think that's um whether it's now or, or or next week or something, but it's it's yeah. basically in place. So, so that means
3: folks can visit your museum, and your museum is not far from Launceston. So tell us about your location and times, and uh, and take it from there.
2: Yeah, so we're just 45 minutes drive from Launceston. Launceston is one of the main main uh, cities and airports in Tasmania, in the central part of Tasmania, and we're just down the down the river from there, and next to our other tourism facilities, Seahorse World, um, and it's a lovely area. Yeah, so come
3: along and visit us. Great stuff. We'll hear more of you with when questions and answers come. Joseph, what you got coming up?
1: Great stuff. Well, uh, let's have a a quick look through Sam and before we get on to the sort of pre-prepared questions, uh, let's have a look and see if any questions have come through. Remember folks, you can keep your questions coming all through this evening uh, about any of these kind of topics in general. We will get to them, but let's have a look and see what's been going on in the chat and then we'll uh, dive into some of our questions that we've had from the last few streams where are we at at? Sam?
0: uh we've got a question here from george bond for me uh when are we likely to see that movie sam um so we're going to be um uh we are working on it at the minute it's um we're gearing towards sort of the probably the hopefully the first half of this year i think is what we've decided um we it it depends on how things go but hopefully it'll be this year
3: hopefully before Uh, the lord returns george bond
0: yes hopefully yes um and and uh, in uh traditional george one fashion we've got a joke uh, we had a science teacher at high school her name was mrs turtle she taught us well
1: of course that uh, joke doesn't work if you're um american because you call them a tortoise yeah something different <laughs> yeah. um or a, or a turtle everything's a turtle We used to get very annoyed when we were working with tortoises and people used to come in and call them turtles. But there we go. Anyway, uh, do we have any any questions? Uh, questions? Yes,
0: George George did ask a question. Why don't creationists use O-PARTS more often as evidence against them? O-PARTS.
1: O-PARTS stands for out-of-place artefacts. Shall I comment quickly, John, and then you come in? Go right ahead, yeah. All right, first and reason first and foremost is uh 1 Thessalonians 5:21 where it says test all things hold fast to what is good. The trouble is with a lot of uparts or out-of-place artifacts, so that's an artifact which is found where it shouldn't be, so examples of these that have been used um, are things like uh, bells and chains found in coal um, or human footprints with dinosaur footprints or things like that, right? The biggest problem with most of them is that they can almost never be proved you'll find the worst case scenario is that it was actually somebody claimed to find it back in the you know Victorian times and they told somebody else and that person told another person and then finally another person wrote an article about it and oh look this is a you know a story which is claimed to be true now you can't go around saying oh well they must have lied about it but neither can you really prove that it's real so you've got that at one end of the extreme all the way to the other end of the extreme where there's something that you can actually Go and see. You can take casts of it. You can, uh, uh, you, know, um, you know, take uh, take uh, measurements and actually visually and scientifically verify it. So, and you'll find most parts tend to lean more on the on the first side of things. They've either been hidden, or they're secondhand reports, or they've been destroyed, or so on and so forth. So, the biggest issue with out of place artifacts, by the way the very concept of an out-of-place artifact only really fits uh, with uh, an evolutionary millions-of-years timescale because, uh, you know, these are human interactions in stuff which is supposed to be millions of years old, and so that's your problem there, right there, right? So it's only out of place if you reject Scripture first and foremost. If you accept Scripture, they're not out of place at all because man has been here since the beginning, as Jesus said. Um, but you'll find the biggest problem with these artifacts is actually proving they are what they say they are and being able to go and visually uh, verify it as well as repeatedly do experiments on it. So there are a few ones which I believe probably were very real and very genuine but the problem is now uh, you just simply can't go and verify them anymore john any any
3: comments yes one that i was involved in uh, for quite a while checking things is both the footprints in the Paluxy and the hammer that was Mm. discovered down there and of course you end up with most of these things uh with at least two very logical explanations one from the evolutionist who loves his millions of years time scale, who has to explain in a logical way why you would find a hammer in the wrong place. And of course, the simplest explanation for them was a miner dropped it down a crack in the ground and it re solidified. Now, if you want to be objective, that's a clever explanation and it's hard to disprove. Um, at the same time, you'll find that if you want to prove that it is from an ancient you know pre-diluvian society you end up just as stuck as the evolutionists so you end up saying now what can i achieve by arguing over this when the very rocks have fossils in it that are much more helpful in arguing against evolution the shells in the limestone at the plexi have not changed from then till now even if you thought that rock was laid down, 100 million, 200 million, whatever date you want to put on, it is no use to the evolutionist. So in my debates, I find it very helpful to say, here's what the rock solid evidence is. No dispute about this. In fact, I'd encourage you when you are sharing evidence, make sure that there is no dispute about the actual nature of the evidence itself. The evidence is real and it actually conks evolution on the head. It'd be very nice to have an autograph uh, signature by Noah printed on a beam of wood found on Mount Ararat, but we don't have that yet. We do have a piece of wood dated by Carbon Ford in Renner at the right place, brought down by a French explorer in the 1950s, but again, it's, it's sort of plus minus. Uh, it's, it's hard to deal with, so uh, I'd encourage you check carefully that big pot in the coal Found over there when I went to check that out The museum burned down way back in the early 1900s So uh, there was no evidence there to actually check on So double check your sources and stick to that Which is doubly 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 provable It's, It's plenty to bang the evolutionists on the head And don't forget to move from there to the positive Here's what God says about why the fossils have not changed He made them produce your own kind, and he doesn't change. So I was opposed to homosexuality 4,000 years ago. He's opposed to it now. He's the same God. He reproduces after his own kind morally. He uh, is the same person as he always was.
1: Amen. Great stuff. All right, any other questions that have come through, Sam, or shall we dive into the, the main one? no no
0: nothing nothing else has come that's it is it all
1: right well in that case (laughs) what i'm going to do is i'm going to pull up the first question that we're going to talk about now it's a, a slightly longer question so what i'm going to have to do is put it in as a chat and then show that chat on the screen so let's pop it in just now it is from us so that's good let's show it and hopefully it all shows up on the screen there it is is there any evidence for population curbing mechanisms that would prevent overpopulation in a pre-death world by prolific reproducers like mice or flies two flies in just five months time would produce 191 with a whole number of uh, zeros afterward house flies which is enough to cover the planet several meters deep so um john and diane would you like to uh have a go at tackling that obviously it's got some implications because i mean if there wasn't such things as say spiders eating flies in a good world then surely you would end up with just being drowned in in,
4: in bugs
3: diane take it away for starters <laughs> uh,
4: well well that does actually hit us <clears throat> hit a spot for us down in australia we do have lots of flies uh, you have lots of spiders as well. Trust me, I've been Ah, uh, y- Yes, I'm afraid so. Yes, yes. If you want a lovely description of, of flies as experienced by a visitor to Australia, there's a lovely description in Bill Bryson's book, Down Under, where he describes going for a walk. And he was initially joined by one fly and ended up with a great... Cloud of them. But anyway, it it is a good point. Um, In today's world, things like flies, bugs, mice, right, they can produce, reproduce at incredibly prolific rates, but they don't have to. when things are when the environment's pretty tough, actually, they they stop reproducing, and uh, and the same with with other animals and birds. They seem to be very um, attuned to changes in the environment, and they will stop reproducing at the sort of rate that they do. Um, but I think one of the uh, the key points to understanding it is to go back to the Bible and look at descriptions of how God interacts with the creation. Um, I always find Psalm 104 particularly helpful because there is a verse in there that says, uh, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. Now this is in the context of of the the living world. In other words, uh, the living world is still under the control of God the Creator. When uh, sin came into the world, when he cursed the ground and when he said that death would come into the world, he didn't then just give up and uh, allow things to just go on and on without any control. So he is still in control. Um, Even human reproduction. uh, When um, Eve had her firstborn son, she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man or I have gotten a man. In other words, she knew that human babies were certainly more than biology. Now, human beings are different from the animal world because we are body, soul and spirit, Uh, whereas animals uh, don't have a human spirit in the same way, but they still are under the control of the creator who is the giver of life and who is the one who can take it away, but also he is still in control of Uh, how much reproduction does go on. Uh, And so he would know when the earth was filled with whatever creatures he had made enough to uh, keep the ecosystems functioning. Uh, So if if you want to add to that, John.
3: uh... Sure. I'll give Craig a bit of warning because I'm going to apply this in a moment via uh, Craig to the issue of plants Mm. with the same Mm. problem to plants. But I'll come back to you, Craig. Uh, You're the forester, you can tell us about trees and reproduction and things like that. Uh, Some of the things Diane's mentioned, we can go on a little bit further. Do you remember the plagues of Egypt when God told um, Moses to tell Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to bomb you with flies, right? And flies just came out of their noses, out of their ears, out out of everything, right? So you find that God did this quite a few times with insects plagues of insects and whether we like it or not you don't get a locust plague just because the locusts decide to have gazillions of babies when you have a look the god of the bible says when i send forth my spirit this is the psalm 104 concept when i send forth my spirit the animals multiply they reproduce right to our blessing or to our detriment in Pharaoh's case, will you give up Pharaoh? Okay, you won't, I'm going to send plagues, right? And if you can, well, I've been to Canberra. Come on, Diane, be honest about Canberra. The flies are stupid. I mean, up here in Queensland, we have decent flies. If they're going to bite you, they bite you. If they're going to fly around, they fly around. But down there, they sort of land on you and they lick your nose. And oh, it's that they're so stupid, they don't even fly away. They're so slow. Now, that's just as terrible to me as the bitey ones. But in reality, if you can imagine that 10 zillion times for Pharaoh and all of the people, the insects, the grasshoppers, the locusts, etc., going mad, but going mad reproductive-wise, courtesy of God's instruction. When I send forth my spirit, the animals reproduce. Okay, now, when you think carefully, the same turns out to be true for people. Do you remember when Pharaoh was worried about the population? I guess an an election was coming up in our terms, right? And Pharaoh was worried there are so many Jewish people, so many people of Israel, they were going to topple him. And so he sent instructions that the men were to be given double labour and half rations. So you can imagine dad coming home, he's exhausted, he's got no time to even think of having kids and the women get pregnant anyway man alive this is not what you learn in biology in year nine high school is it boy plus girl equals babies and the bible says no boy plus girl plus god's instruction equals babies plus god's provision equals babies when god sends forth his spirit the animals reproduce when god withdraws his spirit it says the beast falls to the ground and they die hence when you want to deal with plagues Don't forget to say, Lord, you are the God of the plague. Deliver us. Ah, can I encourage you to remember biology is more than just physics and chemistry and mother nature. That's where the theory of evolution has got us. So part of this question is to deal with what's your real belief about how nature works? Because the Bible says God has stamped his personality, his character, into the nature of the creation and yet you and i are blinded to it craig do we have a similar problem of overpopulation of plants or is that what weeds are uh, what happens when you plant gazillion pine trees because that was your industry wasn't
2: it well I was, I was thinking more of the instance of plants um not flowering and not reproducing when when things at times are great um, often, <coughs> uh, for example, eucalypts, they, they don't, when the environmental conditions are fantastic and, and will flower prolifically, when uh, things get tough, um, you can ring bark at, and often then see it flowering as though it's trying to reap, uh, die. So, um, so in a good world, imagine that um, you know, if, if, if there was environmental opportunity for a plant to reproduce and needed to reproduce to you know, uh, keep its kind going, it, it, would, it would flower and, um, and reproduce as such. But if the conditions are great and the tree's living for a thousand know, years or something, well, it probably doesn't need to be prolifically reproducing every year. Um, so are you saying, so Craig, it's, it's got a, a
3: feedback mechanism in it that tells it when it's good time to produce re- and when the, yeah. it doesn't need to?
2: Uh, yeah, I think many gardeners would just from the fact, you know, when they actually <coughs> prune back and and, and and knock back their... Um, that, that's the time they'll see, see it uh, prolifically flowering uh, shortly after. Um, and that that's basically saying... You know, when the plant needs to, um, it, it will respond to to the environmental conditions out there. So in other words, if so, if even in a not-
3: perfect world, God has built some uh, feedback mechanisms in to maintain a population as stable. That's really the takeaway line?
2: Oh, I think so, yeah, yeah.
3: Okay, there's one other thought I'll add to this, because you see, the, the, the question we sometimes get asked is, how many guinea pigs did Noah take on the ark? Because (laughs) you take two guinea pigs on the ark and after a year you've got 10,000 of them. So there's a factor involved here uh, just in the year on the ark. The animals that went on the ark, there's probably two factors involved. One is God is going to keep them non-reproductive. Two ways to do that. He sends immature creatures onto the ark, creatures that are before their reproductive cycle starts up. Now, in terms of reproductive cycles in humans, did you ever notice the age of the people who got on the ark? Noah was 500 uh, when you first meet him in Genesis chapter 5. And then it mentions he has three kids. Three kids in 500 years. Something's going on. There's no birth control pill, right? There's a factor here that God is maintaining a population. Perhaps there's several things going on. One is, have you ever thought of if you lived to be 900, How long were you a teenager? (laughs) Were you a teenager 200 years? Heaven forbid, can you imagine 200 year old teenagers? But it might have been in terms of their reproductive cycle. Shem, were they 100 years old when they got on the ark? They certainly were, and yet they didn't have any kids. They didn't have any kids till afterwards. So perhaps the whole life cycle was stretched in creatures that lived before Noah's flood. So when you took creatures on the ark, two of each kind, they simply would have looked to you and me as if they were adult in their lifestyle, but they had not yet reached that reproductive capacity and there was a good reason for it. They were going to be a year on the ark without needing kids at all. So God has built, just like in the plants, a mechanism that would inhibit the population. And lastly, have you ever thought of that that God gave Adam an instruction? He said multiply and fill the earth so in a perfect world where sin did not enter think carefully if adam fulfilled that instruction we finally got to the point where from god's perspective the earth was full that instruction would be cancelled there would be no further need for that instruction how could god cancel it think carefully boy plus girl equals babels wrong that's naturalism that's pure evolutionism that's anti-godism the real reason god plus man plus woman equals children you've got to always keep in the mind the picture is bigger than we could ever think so yes when it comes to flies praise god those canberra flies have no chance of taking over the world at all even built into the climate you come into queensland yeah get a little bit more active because it can be a bit warmer up here But as soon as it gets past a certain warmth the wax on the outside of their bodies melts yay and the sticky silly flies disappear they can't function so there's automatic built-in programs that will stop this multiplication ever taking over god first us second and then the principles god has built into nature uh, are there as well to inhibit population i think that's probably enough on that one joseph
4: that's great. Thing to well, draw. I have to defend oh, on, Canberra you. a bit. It, um, it back in the 1960s, Canberra was referred to as the place of blowflies and opportunities, um, <laughs> <laughs> because it was growing then. Um, but it is out in the bush and uh, surrounded by a lot of uh, sheep farms, and so there were a lot of blowflies, and they controlled them by sowing the la- uh, seeding the land with uh, dung beetles, so that can control the the sheep droppings and they had to do that again after the big bushfire that sort of um, raged through canberra and all, all of the surrounding land and and destroyed a lot of them so again it's to do with the um a, a good balanced ecology will keep things under control that's that's physically built in as well as god has never lost control of the biological world and we need to keep that in mind uh, is so that greg right? i just thought for advice <laughs>
3: I just thought of another question that might come out in here that people might find interesting, because you shared with us about um, but I guess two things. One is when we were planting our gum trees at Jurassic Ark and getting nowhere. Here we are in Australia planting gum trees and getting nowhere. You shared that you have to plant more than just the gum tree. there's other biological features. Do you want to comment on that?
2: Uh, you, you might be referring to the uh, mycorrhiza, are you? yeah. Yeah, so so there's a lot of um, you know biological uh, you know critters, the fungi, and um, microorganisms in the soil that interact with the eucalypts and, and other trees and plants as well. Um, that's necessary to be there. So um, you know, I'm not not sure what you're referring to with regards to the debate on on uh,
3: the abundance of species but um well i i think i remember because you appeared in our documentary um darwin down under uh, darwin's you know the the world of darwin etc that we did and you commented that if you want to plant the gum tree you need to plant the soil as well with the whole system in so that that you you got more than just the gum trees involved here but there's another feature you mentioned about the number of species um that are necessary in an environment uh you've been involved in pine forestry correct
2: a little yeah
3: yeah a little okay and you mentioned that, that one of the most mutated plants on the planet is the pine tree because it's been planted so often the number of mutations is really increasing and uh, this sort of is is reducing the efficiency of the pine am i ringing bells to you
2: well it's it's been uh, you know genetically um modified because of human selection basically we we have um uh the genetic selection of the 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 better traits for timber growing and and so that the the wild ones are actually not not uh, this is in terms of radiata pine the wild radiata pine aren't that fantastic uh, in terms of um straightness of of the tree and the branching and so on but now the, the radiata pine is a, is worldwide grown for, for its timber um, because the, the genes have been, um, you know, selected for those traits. And, and that means those trees are very um, at risk of, of uh, disease and uh, insect attack and so on um, because they don't have their original genetic diversity that can, help fight back against some of those things
3: in <laughs> other words there's there's a feedback mechanism when we try to play god too um and it sort of bites against what we're trying to do if we try to increase the number of any one plant way beyond its normal role in the environment would that be a correct statement
2: yeah i guess um it's it's been manipulated such by humans um i'm not i'm not, i'm not so sure how we compare that to a a natural system um you know maybe if the the natural system is selecting it right out down to the nth degree then um things become extinct not um uh it's not really really helping things to 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 boom across the Mm -hmm. the world as such
3: okay so No one's really asking about being overcome by too many pine trees. So I guess we can let that one rest a while. Joseph, what's our next issue coming up? All
1: right. Well, John, I'd like you to just briefly comment on this question, which we had come through at one of our earlier streams. And the reason why is because of course next time everybody is our Birthday celebrations. It's been exactly one year since we uh, started Creation Conversations. So we're doing a special broadcast, which will feature myself, John, and Diane. We'll be tackling uh, one of our most popular topics each um, so they'll in- probably include climate change uh it'll include uh races and racism and um, we've got actually got a question about that i saw come through in the chat a minute ago so we'll again briefly deal with it with this evening but join us next time for an in-depth but also this has been a really popular topic which has to do with this question and that's the issue of giants in particular giants and nephilim so john just as a little teaser could you give us a uh, your thoughts on this? Um, people at the same time of uh, people at the time of Babel had technical knowledge from heaven via the Nephilim and uh, i've heard uh, ideas that it was these these nephilim these supposedly half angel half uh, human creatures that um gave the technology to do the pyramids and babel and all this kind of stuff as well so give us a little bit of a very brief background and comment but of course we'll be dealing with it much more in depth next week is that correct
3: yep that's correct um, give you the background i was asked by a group of baptist pastors because they were particularly being asked by their congregations about Nephilim, about the angelic beings, about uh, mating with men, women, etc. cetera, um, what, what about them? So we spent three days, uh, I think eight sessions or so, on this issue. No, you're not gonna get that whole section now, but when it comes to what's been applied here, Babel, you have to be honestly biblical about the people at Babel. Who were they? It says in Genesis chapter 10 that everybody on the planet Including those who would end up at Babel Were descended from Noah and his three sons Because Noah had no more children Then we are down to three sons Ham, Shem and Japheth There is no Nephilim If you look at the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 There were giants on the land in those days They did not hang on to the outside of the ark They did not swim for 370 days or whatever. You will find there is no Nephilim of any description that would have survived the flood. Neither is there any reference to Nephilim as having been a descendant of Noah's family prior to (laughs) Babel. Uh, Where did they get their information from? Think carefully. Noah had built an ark, single-handed. As the organizer, he'd organized his sons, they'd probably got their friends and offered them money. They offered them to get onto the ark, but as far as we know, none of them were interested. Um, They would have utilised their talent. And you find that in the world, to Noah's day, there was abundant evidence that man was made in God's image and we were far smarter than we are now. Come on, have you built a wooden boat, 300 and something whatever, cubits? I mean, this is unbelievable. The size of the ark that was built by Noah and without going to boat school is incredible technology. If you've been to see Ken Ham's version of the big boat, then you'll find that that's incredible technology. But Noah did it all by himself as the supervisor with his son's help and probably some paid labor as well. You'll find that by the time you get off the ark at the other side, there's no reference to any Nephilim living at all. So by the time you get to the Tower of Babel within a couple of centuries, is there any reason To invoke um, giant information? I mean, what are you doing? You're gathering up bitumen to coat the ark, uh, sorry, to coat the uh, tower, to coat the bricks and stick them all together. Uh, I'm sorry, the technology of the Tower of Babel is nowhere near as sophisticated as the technology of Noah's Ark. So I'm going to put a big cross on that one. There's no need for information from Nephilim, even about the tower going to heaven. Um, it got to be seven stories or so we're led to believe from many ancient legends. It was still there in terms of the, uh, Greek society who report the structure being left. It's a big hole. Now go to Google maps, search the tower of Abel. You'll find the big basement there. You'll find the locals say, oh, we took all the bricks to build our own houses, but then that's what they did to all the castles in Scotland and England as well. Once castles became useless so i think that's probably as much as we need to say but look for more next week
1: absolutely and uh you'll find we've already had a program it's one of the most popular programs on um the nephilim and on giants and all of that we'll do a lot more detail and a bit more of a bible study next week um so join us for that all right let's move on to uh, to another question here let's see what we've got from the last um oh yes john let's uh, let's deal with this one because we were actually discussing about this uh just a couple of nights ago by the way uh last night for me here in the uk whatever time it was for you there john and diane uh we recorded two more episodes of our special creation research evidence news. It was supposed to be one episode and I had in my mind, I've got a good idea, let's get John to briefly comment on the sort of Russia-Ukraine conflict that's been going on because John, I know he's been over uh, over to Eastern Europe just after the Iron Curtain fell and uh, did a load of stuff around there, so it'd be good to get his perspective on it. And of course, the three-minute clip that I was thinking about turned into a 30-minute clip when John actually got to the end of it, but really really good content so we've decided to split them up we are putting out a creation research evidence news this evening it'll be going out after creation conversations about 11 30 uk time uh 11 30 in the evening uk time um and uh, at some point early next week we'll be putting out our next creation research evidence news the main one whoops with lots of topics uh, featuring diane eager of course so um do catch up on that after the end of this and uh, as it comes out in the next couple of days. But, John, let's deal with this question here. It was a comment that came through on one of our previous streams. Um, no rain before the flood is pure speculation, uh, said our commenter. Would you like to uh, talk about that?
3: Sure. Um, just a, a brief commercial. If folks want to get a heads up on the issue uh, that you uh, cornered me on for the uh um, Russia issue, uh, that was the first time we dealt with prophecy, as it was in the days of Noah. Who is 666, who is 777, all of those sort of figures, you'll find that a brilliant heads up. And uh, Sam, you might want to put up our um, where they can download that from as a uh, video file, uh, you'll find that a very, very helpful one, as it was in the days of Noah. Okay so what we're going to do now is answer the question concerning rain because traditionally I guess you have to say amongst those who believe literally in creation the attitude has been on day one the world was created covered with water on day two the waters below are separated from waters above point to be made Noah's flood was the second time the world was covered with water Uh, this is the first time Ah, the world was created covered with water on day two, that water is split and you end up with waters above and waters below On day three, the dry earth is brought up from underneath the water And anything's on the outside must go inside Hence your traditional understanding of the waters below And by the time you get to Noah's flood, that waters below the earth will crack And the fountains of the deep are recorded as pouring out As being a major contributor to the flood as well as the heavens shattering the heavens breaking and the rain coming down now by the time you get to genesis chapter 8 when it talks about in the six hundredth year of noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month you're starting at verse 11 and it says the heavens broke open now that is the first reference to rain it rained for 40 days and 40 nights now we've only had two days rain here and already we're up to 300 millilitres um, or millimetres rather of rain just around here we wouldn't want to see another 38 days of rain like it is at the moment perpetual rain it's its its quite mind-numbing really my dogs have got nowhere to go the kids that the visit the, they're bored because everything outside is absolutely damp but Noah is the first reference to rain in the Bible Uh, The previous reference was negative. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 talks about, and there was no rain. The context, every day a mist rose up and watered the whole surface of the earth, and there was no rain. That's a negative. There was no man yet, so we know that that's how God was preparing the world because, I'll be honest, I'm a bit of a farmer. I love growing things like tomatoes, you know, the big love, red juicy ones. Now, my tomato plants respond beautifully to mist. They don't even like a harsh hose. In fact, the thing that kills them where I live is heavy drops of rain. You'll, you'll think, okay, the ground's getting refilled. True, it is. But they, the leaves are so soft, the rain bruises them, and next day the plant just simply wilts. Tomato plants and softly plants hate rain they love mist that's why so many people even out here will grow them in greenhouses we can tr- control the misting of the plant uh, it's a few years ago since they set up a a big greenhouse down there in canberra if i remember correctly its location no adelaide it was that's right and they filled it up with mist each day and they reported the plants grew two and three times the rate they would normally grow outside of that beautiful greenhouse environment and the bible says and there was no rain now that's the negative that's the establishment and from then until genesis chapter 8 there isn't a single reference to rain the covering feature a mist rose up every day and watered the whole surface of the earth now i know there are christians say oh there's no way it couldn't have rained." well i've got a suggestion God set up a perfect system, even for tomatoes to grow. Uh, they don't like rain, and I'm sure there are many plants that, if you looked hard enough, you would find they don't like rain. In fact, let's be honest: most of you humans don't really like rain. Oh, provided you can be behind the window looking out, and in your you know your wet gear and that looking out, it's fine. But being in it all the time is not. And then Genesis chapter eight. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And then at the end of the flood, God told Noah, from now till the end of the world, there'll be summer, there'll be winter, there'll be dry, there'll be heat, there'll be you know cold, there'll be heat, there'll be summer, there'll be winter. Uh, The world became our world, the one you're used to. So don't wear present-day goggles to look back. If God says there was no rain and the next time, there's a positive that says it does rain. Don't add anything. Joseph, you've come across a few people who try to add things. So what's their sort of logic?
1: The logic usually consists of, well, if you have a look at uh, the, the verse, uh, it says uh, the specifics of the verse is that a mist came up to water the earth because there was no man to till the ground. And they say, oh, look at what it's implying. It's implying that the mist is only there because there's no man. Once there is a man then there doesn't need to be a mist and so you can have rain that's one argument we've heard i've heard another argument where you've dealt with already which basically says oh you know um there's no way that you couldn't have rain because the whole hydrologic system the meteorological system is based around rain and of course you've got to remember well what can we observe today well the only thing we can observe today is the hydrologic system or the meteorologic system which is in place today Now, has something massive and significant that may well have completely changed the entire uh, workings of the hydraulic and meteorologic system happened in Earth's past? Yes, it's called a global flood right it's going to massively change the way that water works uh on the earth and it's going to massively change the way that water uh, works in the atmosphere as well so you can't really use today's system and say oh look in today's world we couldn't have a mist coming up and watering and working out everywhere over the planet simply because we have a hydrologic system and a meteorologic system which is a mess I mean, let's face it, if we had a working meteorological system, we wouldn't have deserts. We wouldn't have, you know, polar caps and ice caps and glaciers. It would be a good world just like God created it. So don't, you know, be careful of falling into the trap of using a, cursed world to try and describe a non-cursed world or try and work out the mechanisms of how a non-cursed world worked. But John, do you want to comment on that little uh, bit that I started with about what the way that the Bible verse looks? Could it mean that, oh, there was no rain because there wasn't a man, now there is a man, it does mean rain. Is that really what it's implying?
3: Okay, you have to think of the immediate context. This is, at the best, a reference to the day before man was here right uh, if you argue that way it must refer to man appearing on the planet so the whole system changes what had God done in the preceding five days on day three he had set up a garden system of botanic gardens all over the planet like you can't believe So no man was there didn't make the slightest difference God created the plants and he created a perfect watering system For those plants day three day four he adds light Day five he adds the animals still no man And yet that perfect system the mist That rose up every day and watered the whole surface of the earth Was sufficient to keep every plant on the planet So simply throwing in a man on the sixth day Followed by a woman uh, He's made the actual garden for the man also before the man is there. So there is no need to add a man just because you think it's man that needs the the rain. Man does not need the rain. If we had a mist that rose up every day and watered the whole surface of the earth, I've got thousands of farmer friends in Australia who'd say, yay, go for it, God. I mean, come on. We are having floods at the moment. Nearly 300 mils in the last 24 hours. It's not even nine o'clock here yet. That's when our weather forecast weather measuring starts. So we're going to hit that 300 milliliters uh, millimeters mark. Uh, I'm pretty sure yeah. of that. But 300 millimeters of rain in one day is nothing compared to even Noah's flood, but it's nowhere near as good as farmers who live out back who haven't seen rain in 10 years uh, at all they would love a mist that rose up every morning and watered the surface of the whole earth i mean the cost saving alone would be phenomenal even at jurassic we have piping we have pumping we've spent thousands on extending the dam so we could have at least two years water supply because we've had three four five year droughts it's as simple as that the cost saving alone would be spectacular so i caution anybody who wants to add uh, rain just because man is put on the planet, we would be far better off having to simply invent a nice place to stay overnight and get up out of bed after the mist had done all the hard work. You know, when I get up in the morning, I spend about an hour watering my pot plants and my gardens just to keep them growing. What a blessed relief it would be if I didn't have to do that. Okay, Joseph.
1: All right. Well, I'd like to uh, just have a pause for my um main questions and go back to some questions that have been in the chat and i'll just run down through a few of them because we've got uh, lots of questions coming through and uh, in particular we've got uh, um, a lot of questions from one particular person who's got the uh, handle of bramble matt and there's quite a few interesting comments he's making so john i'd like uh uh, we can together and and diane and craig whoever can 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 uh, work through some of these um let me start with this one here uh, biblical days are not our biblical days are periods of time. The Hebrews didn't have a seven-day week. Um, John, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Okay, when you have a look at the Hebrews, they first of all you start out with ancestor Abraham, and he comes from a pagan culture. He is a worshiper of pagan gods, and his dad died a pagan, as far as we can find out then you have abraham who is following god's instruction and god is setting up a new kingdom a new place for him now when you ask did abraham have a biblical exodus chapter 20 verse 11 concept the answer is probably no somewhere between babel and the birth of abraham his ancestors had turned to idols had made their own religion had made their myths and legends and he was brought up that way okay so no evidence that abraham had a working seven-day week by the time you get to uh, Moses and you have Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 you have exactly the opposite God instructs them to have a seven-day week when they're in Egypt we know from ancient history that Egyptians had a 10-day week just like modern communism you know when modern communism started it was antagonistic to anything that smacked of the biblical record six days work followed by one day rest smacked the creation and Noah's flood and Exodus chapter 20 and the law of the God they despised, so they got rid of it and imposed a 10 day week it crashed it simply doesn't work so when they were in Egypt even if they believed in six days of creation and one day of rest a six days of work and one day of rest they were in no position as slaves to implement their time scale so one reason why God pulls them out is once they are out from underneath pharaoh's big toe out from under his rod they are free to do as a nation the things that god would be pleased with and one of those was to work for six days and to rest on the seventh now since the name that's usually referred to these people are the descendants of eba from which we get our word hebrews i can find no suggestion to say okay moses and the mob that left egypt are not hebrews so from the time of the exodus they actually do have a seven-day week so you need to be careful in the way you word your question this does not refer back to the days of creation god's reinvention or, or reconstruction of okay guys here's what i did at creation here's how you're going to run your week because as a state you're in control and if you don't i'm going to hold you guilty right as a state as a nation i'm going to hold you guilty but this has nothing to do with God uh, using ordinary days back there at Genesis uh, to create the world and the simplest explanation is Moses is up there on Mount Sinai the last thing he's ever going to ask God is okay what do you mean by six days that doesn't make any sense whatsoever for one very pragmatic reason Moses comes down the mountain he's got two tablets of stone and he says hey guys we no longer have to work for 10 days in a row and then another 10 days. Slaves don't get days off, by the way. We can have one day rest in seven. Hallelujah. Right? And there isn't a single Jew, single Hebrew, a single Israelite is going to say, excuse me, Moses, what do you mean by day? Uh, that is the stupidest thing. They would, they would have rejoiced in the fact that they understood day and that day is coming from Genesis no matter how much or how little information they had passed down from Abraham all the way through until God reinforces it in the days of Moses. That helped, Joseph?
1: Great stuff. Yeah. And I'm just going to jump on the back of that to two more questions that have come in from Bramwell Matt. The first one is How did the Zuzim survive the flood? And the second one off the back of that is Well, the global flood didn't wipe out other tribes that Noah had conflict with after the flood. So I think there's a small amount of. Confusion here. I'll comment one thing because the Zuzim from my memory um, comes from Genesis 14 or 15. Uh, it's a very, very brief mention and it simply just refers to a time after the flood uh, where Abraham um, is recording some of the dealings that some of the kings had. They lived in the land of Ham and uh, that's the only reference to them. So there's no reference to them, to my knowledge, John, correct me if I'm wrong, of the Zuzim uh, or the Zuzites before. Now is flat and it's the same for the tribes and the people that had conflict with, um, uh, the descendants of Noah after the flood that's recorded at the time of Abraham and so on and so forth. But John, what's really going on here? Are these other tribes, people groups that managed to survive the flood or are these all mm-hmm. descendants of Noah? I mean, can you give us uh, if, if you can in enough time, <laughs> a very brief look? And by the way, we'll be dealing with races and stuff um, next, uh, next week. So uh, joining with that, but just give us a, a brief look, John of uh, sort of the, the timeline and the history here
3: okay now my wife and i are reading every night out of the book of chronicles how long it's going to take us i don't know we're already confused with all the strange to us anyway hebrew names and other names and tribal names and things like that but the one advantage of reading the chronicles and the kings and samuel and all that is to get a picture of how did the world get to be like it is because the bible is emphatic you get to the end of noah's flood that the only people on the planet are those descended from Noah. Everybody on the planet is a descendant of the people that were on the ark. Reread Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Right? You need to actually get that perspective and stop saying, Oh, Abraham encountered this tribe, the Zuzim. Uh they must have been they must have survived the flood. Uh, no, sorry. Everybody on the planet excuse me is a descendant of Noah and his three sons so you'll find that ham gave rise to those who become the ones that live in Egypt and hence the name that comes back to us ham means hot Egypt is hot Egypt has got black people ham equals dark so you get around 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 and 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 that's the connection there but Egypt did not survive the flood the pyramids did not survive the flood These are all post-flood structures, all part of man's continued rebellion. And whether you come across the Anakim or the Zuzumim or the Vegemem, uh, these are all tribes descended from the descendants of Noah. So there's the confusion. The fact that the archaeologists say, oh, these people were living here. The fact that even some so-called biblical scholars say they must have survived outside the ark, which leads you back to one thing. Noah's flood couldn't have been worldwide. The people must have survived up a valley, up a hill, somewhere else, or built their own little boat. Either way, Noah's flood is refined, is confined rather to a section uh, in the Middle East somewhere. And the Bible is emphatic that all the highest hills under the whole heavens Mm -hmm. were covered Old Testament and New Testament. The world was destroyed catastrophically, Peter says. There wasn't a trace of that first world left. So nobody survived. Everybody post-flood is ascended from Noah and his three sons.
1: Thanks for that, John. Great stuff. I'm just going to bring up one last comment for you to, to deal with because it should be a nice and quick and easy one, and uh, I'll uh, give one quick solution to it as well. Is a question that's just come in, and then we'll go back to some of our questions that we had uh, from previous streams. Um, he's come back and said, don't forget the ancient Greek word for world wasn't the globe that we know. Of course, we're not actually talking about Greek words here. We're talking about Hebrew words here, particularly in reference to uh, Noah's flood. So um, I believe one uh, particular word that is key here is marbul. So can you give us a bit of background to that and how we know that this is referring to a a global flood?
3: Okay, you'll find this Hebrew word in several places. And the first, of course, is in Genesis uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, the one we refer to, because the hebrews had a i mean it's different from english in english uh we use a, a noun a naming word plus usually adjectiving or adverbial descriptors that go around it so we had the flood of 2011. Uh, we just don't call it okay the gimpy flood right even that would have a descriptor uh, so we we need at least several words to describe the flood we're talking about We had a major flood in Gympie in 1999 when I was a boy and used to go to Gympie. The floodwaters rose 70 feet. I watched. It's unbelievable. Came right up and went right over the bridge. And all I can think of, well, that was the flood when I was a boy. Now, that's about 10 words, uh, and I have to do that. Now, there are other ways of using language. And in this case, the Hebrews don't use an adjectival. Description They don't say Noah's flood, they say Mabul, and they have another word for every other sort of flood. There's the flood that covered everything, Mabul, and then there's the yearly floods of the Nile or the local floods of the water flooding down uh, the river before Joshua crossed it and being held back, etc. So, one word for Noah's flood, and it appears in Genesis chapter 8 through 11, and then you'll find it again. In Psalm 29 where it says the Lord sits as King of the Mabul and he sits as King forever the Lord will bless his people with peace and they judge those who aren't his so read up on your Hebrew read up on your word Mabul and you'll find that it really doesn't matter what word the Greeks had for um, world because the Bible the Old Testament wasn't translated into Greek until 300 BC it's been very helpful in trying to get a backwards look at what they may have meant in Hebrew but in reality the original stuff as far as it, everyone can find is Hebrew back there or a pre, pre-Hebrew pre sort of uh, script even that we can read from and Mabul is the key. I, I just thought of a question that Craig might want to ask because Craig's our, our tree expert and I found it very fascinating wandering around Tasmania with you Craig going up doing some fossils and all of that. Uh, You pointed out one of your wattle trees. Now, when you've come to Queensland, one thing we don't have at Jurassic Park is a wattle garden. Uh, You know that beautiful one with the yellow flowers and all of that? And we don't bother planting wattles uh, because they're dead in four or five years. Most of them just simply are bored to death. You know with the borers? The (laughs) borers will kill them off real fast. And yet you showed me down in Tasmania one wattle tree that I couldn't believe because it was the same as the wattle we have, but it was an enormous tree, and you said it was used for timber in Tasmania. What's the difference between your climate down there and the rainfall and all of that, and our climate up here that makes that wattle tree go so well down in your environment?
2: Well, we we do still have wattle grubs down here, um, but they don't seem to um, impact the the silver wattle is probably the one you're referring to but also blackwood um yeah i was amazed when i first moved to tasmania that the the two to three meter high shrub that we saw in northern new south wales and and up into queensland where you are uh grows to a 30 meter high tree down here um and and lives a lot longer so it's not just living you know sort of six or seven years it's 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 living a lot longer than that
3: So it's the environment, it's the climate, it's the absence of borers. What what is the whole picture there? Because when I mean after Noah's flood, the climate changed dramatically, uh, but there were still places where trees grew really well. But those places are getting less and less and less as the climate changes. So what is the difference, say, between Queensland or northern New South Wales and Tasmania Mm -hmm. uh, that makes such a difference to the height this tree can grow?
2: Yeah, well, um, it, it's it's all those things you've said, really. It's it's the, the, the well-drained soils down here, as opposed to what you've got there at um, like Jurassic Park, for example. Um, it's it's the, the regular rainfall we have in Tasmania. It's just it's just a much better environment. It's just a much better climate for that particular plant.
3: Right. So environment is key to population and to size as well, which is a clue both to people their size. And to plants and the luxuriousness of it So when the people of Israel marched from Egypt into uh, Canaan It was described as a land of milk and honey Even with the grapes like this right? So the climate does make a difference And there's no doubt about it The good to bad to worst picture Is a progressive one that's affected everything So Joseph, sorry about that Back to your question again please, Joseph Because I've totally forgotten what it was
1: well, the question that it, uh, that I, I last put up um, was about the um, ancient Greek word for world. So we no, don't so answered one, that one. Um, and then you had your extra thought. So let's uh, go to another question from our, our main group. Um Let's put up uh, this one and see uh, what we can do with this. Is there a difference between water layers and rip currents? This was a question that was asked off the back of um, our, our program. We did a couple of weeks back where we were looking at water layers uh, and we were looking mm-hmm. at the brand new chiastic flow that we were finding in the Strata machine and stuff like that. So, John, do you want to have a talk about that? And you also notice they've put a little reference in there, Psalm 8, um, where it talks about the paths of the sea. So mm-hmm. take, take it away.
3: Okay, I love the Bible reference because the first time I came across this was with the guy who invented the torpedo, who was actually also a a sailor, a naval man, and prophesied really that there'd be secret pathways in the sea based on Psalm 8, and it certainly turns out to be true. So by the time you get to the Cold War, the Americans have made full use of this American's discovery or prophecy about pathways of the sea because they were sailing their submarines on some of these secret pathways and getting right up close to Russia to have a peak sneak Uh, look. Probably something they'd like to do now, but Russian technologies got a little bit further ahead than it was then. Uh, So you'll find that the secret pathways of the sea definitely do exist and they're going all over the planet. And if you know where to get on, then you can just sail for free all over regardless of which way the tide is going regardless of which way the other currents are going so we have currents going around we have the atlantic currents we have the you know the the uh, all of these currents we have in australia we have an eastern sea current and and these mingle and match and all sorts of things but the question is really about our strata machine uh, and the experiments we did on that and showed two weeks ago well good news for those of you who didn't get to see that program Gary and I, Gary's our webman out here We've spent the last week and a half Tidying up all the slides we showed you And they're there now So if you go to creationresearch.net Click on experiments or fascinating strata experiments You'll see all of it there For your criticism and your comment and we, we appreciate both of them So have a good look at it We're trying to get this as, uh, as impressive as it can be Because there's a lot of Christians out there Who still think millions of years and the bottom layer got there first, whereas all of our experiments tell us exactly the opposite. So when you have a look at rip currents and water layers, you and I can go to this. Well, perhaps you can't. You might live in Central (laughs) Australia. It's a little hard to go to the surf there, but if you go down to the coast on Eastern Australia, I'm sure today with all of this rain, there'll be lots of waves that are coming in roughly. And then if you went for a swim, you would find sometimes you couldn't come back in. Because the water comes in and then it will hit the beach And it will go this way and then it will meet And be dragged out, so that's a rip current Now of course if you are in the surf as long as I've been in the surf You'll learn very quickly, don't fight a rip current Just go with it, don't swim against it, swim across it They're very short lived things and they'll just simply carry you out And if you aim across it, you'll swim to the edge And you'll get out of it quite quickly The people who fight against it, they're the ones who sadly drown. So rip currents are very real, they're very small, they're very short, and they really don't do a huge amount. When you have a look inside the waves, yes, I'm one of those who's silly enough to actually have his goggles off under the water so I can see clearly, and when the wave gets you and it's about to dump you, it pushes you down, and uh, you will see the sand all around you just before you smash your face into the sand. And, and you really do a, a flat phased bottom bottom section and, and it, it hurts, but you'll see the sand coming down with you. The direction of the water, even though the waves are technically going this way, the direction of water when you get dumped is going that way. So if you want to see the impact of these, have a look at our creationresearch.net experimental section and, and click on. Uh, you might want to put that fully up there again, Sam, so they can click on the Rapid strata uh, box and have a look at how impressive some of the experiments are. Okay, the water layers, I have hunted high and low for an explanation as to why water has layers. It's certainly true. I've checked with plumbers, I've checked with, well, even Dr. Dine, because she might want to comment in a moment about blood flow being laminated. So far, nobody I know has put up a reason as to why liquids, air, blood, water, actually flows in layers. We know some of the benefits of it, and I'll get Diane to comment particularly when it comes to blood, uh, uh, but in the terms of water, no explanation, I'll just describe it. It's certainly true, water travels in layers. So along the bottom is a layer and all the way up, and the sediment is in layers before it settles out, not in layers because it settles out. Key difference. Have a look at our material, have a look at creationresearch.net make sure you go to the special experimental section diane you, you've concentrated a, a, a fair bit on biology over the years and you you mentioned to me about the benefits of having blood in tubes that actually is layered R- remind us of some of those things because god obviously knew this a long time ago
4: yes well well blood has to uh, is not a a liquid just like um, you know, coloured water. It's it's red because it actually has cells in it. Uh, so the blood that's flowing through your arteries is liquid water with proteins and a whole lot of other things dissolved in it, but it also has to carry cells. Now, <clears throat> it's not good for the cells to be sort of constantly bounced off the walls and uh, and and tumbled around. So in blood that's flowing through your arteries where it's flowing very fast, The cells tend to be in uh, the uh, center column, as it were, and the uh, plasma, that's the the liquid part of it, um, is in the outer layers and it does flow in a sort of laminar form. And so you've got nice, smooth flow for the cells to be rapidly transported to the places where they are needed, where where the branches off the arteries get smaller and smaller until you eventually get to capillaries. where the cells literally go through single file because they need to have access to the um to the walls of the blood vessels but while it's flowing fast yes laminar flow is the most efficient way of transporting anything uh so that the cells aren't jumbled around and bounced off the walls
3: so diane what you're saying is it's in the in the um artery and the pebbles if you want to call them the actual blood cells are in Mm. the center just like when we had our strata machine you have one layer with this size sediment one layer with another one layer with a heavy one layer and it's all happening at the same time is that really what the concept i'm getting that god has got it so you protect the big ones in the middle just because of the way they're shaped and their weight and all of that sort of thing
4: yes because when the blood is flowing through arteries it's just being used as a transport system it's it's like the sort of the highway so you want the cells to move rapidly um, they don't need to have access to the walls of the blood vessels until they get down to the tiny, weeny little ones, where uh, white bloods can, a- white blood cells can actually sort of ooze their way through the walls of capillaries. Red blood cells um, are not supposed to leave the, the blood vessels, but they do need to get up close because they carry the oxygen and, and the carbon dioxide. Um, so, but but while it's flowing through the arteries, which are the, the rapid transport, the, the, the big, thick um, uh, blood vessels. Uh, it's much more efficient that the blood cells are just carried along in the centre and the white blood cells are bigger and heavier than the red blood cells. Uh, so the, they, um, they do tend to be organised in, in their size and their, um, and their weight and their mass.
3: So full marks to God for inventive design and using a principle we've only just stumbled across, with our strata machine he's a really yes, like creator. lots of
4: other things or like everything we've ever discovered all over the world god thought of it first <laughs> we're just discovering what god did um which is what science is it's a useful tool uh that should point us to the uh, just to the the wonderful brilliant design that's in in the big things and and the little things
3: craig down in your tasmania museum which we're encouraging people now they don't have to be vaccinated, to come to Tasmania, go to Launceston, drive up the little way to Beauty Point. It's not named because it's beautiful. I believe it's named after a cow called Beauty that got lost, correct?
2: Yeah, drowned drowned in the river.
3: (laughs) Poor cow. So at Dead Cow Point, that's another name you can give it. You'll find the Creation Museum. But the thing that fascinated me when I was down there last time, Mm. you have a display based on what Diane just said about the genius of God's design using Lego blocks. Do you want to explain your uh, opera house concept there? Because I thought that was brilliant.
2: Yeah, well, it's just a very simple uh, display. We, we, we bought two large Lego um, opera house uh, sets and we built one um, using the intelligence we've got, I guess. Um, and we, we just uh, poured one into a, a tank and made the suggestion. Well, how long would it take you to shake this and and um, and jolt it to, to the point that it would build itself? Um, uh, and w- really, what we're asking people there is they look at the display. Is which one uh, was put together with intelligence? Um, and you know, it's an obvious it's an obvious answer. But um, you know, living cells or cells. Um, can't put themselves together either. Yeah, but that's what uh, people yeah. in the evolutionary sense at some point um, believe must have happened. Um, that's true. And Now, if so folks
3: come to Beauty Point, um, they can get into your museum Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday?
2: Yes, at this point. We're going into winter. We may shut it um, certain days during the week, but we'll open it if people get, get uh, onto us in advance and, and let us know they're coming.
1: I all think right, we you can pray, pray, pray for Craig
3: too, it. because he runs a tourist resort right alongside of it, and with COVID, it's been tough, hasn't it, mate? No crowds allowed into Tasmania, no tourists, no Japanese with all their cameras, etc. So uh, Craig's on just a little bit of a bounce back there. He needs your prayers, and and you have helpers running this as well as you, Craig.
2: Yeah, we've got uh, probably tw- about a dozen dozen volunteers that uh, help man the, the, the center. So um that they've been fantastic.
3: So for those of you who are the helpers who are watching today because Craig and I talked about that yesterday, welcome to, aboard and come on board every week. Joseph back to you.
1: Yeah, I really like that idea of the uh, the opera house there. I think we should get one here in the UK museum, It'd probably do something like I don't know, uh Tower of London Lego kit or a uh, Big Ben Lego kit or something like that. I think that'd work that'd work really well. All right, Sam, over to you. Let's have a look through some of the questions that we've had come in over the last little while and see uh, what's been going. I see we've had more postings from, uh, from Bramble, Matt, so we better work through some of those. And uh, any other questions that have come through? We've got about half an hour left of the broadcast, so we uh, should be able to cover uh, most of the questions that have come in during this stream. So take it away. Yeah,
0: certainly. Um uh, one question for me to you though, Joe, is um I I have a sneaky feeling that um you just want to play with Lego at the end of the day. <laughs> um just you, just any excuse to get a Lego kit and Absolutely. And just ha- absolutely. have a play. Um anyway, right, so we have had some donations. Uh so we've um, got four, one four, coming four. from Iron Matt. He sent in four US buckaroos. And he's uh, sent in a, a pair character exaggerate. Exaggerate. well I can't say that word today. I'm too tired. Uh, stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. I need. You, you need the cup of coffee. Sir. I need the yeah. cup of coffee. So th- <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, Matt, for that. And we've also had uh, ten British buckaroos from Neil Grindley. So God bless you both for that. Thank you so much. It really does help. And uh, I, you know, it, it's, we say this every week. But you guys donating, you know, you know, helping it helps the ministry go. It wheels the the cogs. It keeps everything moving. It enables us to do these streams. It enables us to put content out. You know, it is. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and God bless you all. Right, let's grab some questions. Uh, we have had quite a few from uh, Bramble Matt. Uh, he said. We've had one from George Bond, which relates to the, um, the uh, uh, this, um, machine that we've got. Uh, do oh, you intend to? Much, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you intend to find out how a hydraulic jump can affect the layering in the flume? In a hydraulic jump, you get a section of the water where the velocity is running backwards.
3: Mm. It's certainly true, George. We've not only thought of this; we've done it fifty times, and you're absolutely right. Uh, Particularly when we change the velocity Remember we set the experiment up to only use the things that we've seen happening out there I've sat down beside flooded uh, streams I'm preaching at Gold Coast Baptist tomorrow night And the whole of the strata machine and Noah's flood will be our topic And we will show them what happens You don't need the water to be running backwards You simply need the, the speed of the water to change and it will automatically begin to chew backwards. We couldn't believe this, but you actually find the current, which is doing this uh, as it tumbles over the jump, actually sets up a current here, which is going the other way and eating all the strata out and redepositing it. So you end up with, first of all, you have your nice um, you know inclined strata going this way. And then when the current goes backwards, they're all going up the hill. And you say, ah, if I was interpreting this, on a cliff face I'd say the current was going this way and then the water changed direction no 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 the current within the water changed direction while the water kept on going exactly the same way there is a a really important question here George and it sets up some of the most magnificent structures that we would totally interpret in the wrong way changing just the velocity of the current sets these hydraulic jumps up sets them backwards and enables us to show hey this didn't take millions of years it didn't take a river running the opposite direction it's the same current the water is always flowing in the same direction and it's just behaving internally in an unbelievably amazing way so water is spectacular i can see why god used it to destroy noah's flood because all we need to do is change the speed and all of the strata that gets laid down get just reconfigured within a minute or so It's just absolutely amazing what water can actually do So I can see why God used it to destroy the world I don't know about you but when I was a kid I used to go to Mount Tambourine and there's a waterfall there Now I know it's stupid, I know it's probably illegal today But we would jump off the top of the waterfall And it was a thrill looking at the water coming up Fortunately the water had carved out a big hole So you're in no danger of hitting the bottom But if you sort of began to lose your balance and you miss diving straight in, water from the top of a waterfall feels like concrete when you first hit it. Uh, Up to a certain velocity, it feels nice and soft, but after it gets going, it smashes into things like concrete. Whether it's rocks, it just destroys them as fast as one thing, not by what you think of smashing into them, but by the fact that as soon as it hits the surface, it acts as a vacuum pump and sucks the rocks right out of the cliff so water has so many amazing properties and i'm sure that god invented it on day one covering the world knowing full well he could use it for blessing and he could use it for judgment as well
1: great stuff there thanks john um all right sam next question where next are we Question
0: at? is from jerome m uh so question for diane Uh, What are your thoughts on the Warburg effect? The destruction to the mitochondria from electricity is supposedly the cause of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, three of the leading diseases of the 20th century to present. It cut off there, but it says the
4: 20th century to present. Uh, Well, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes certainly existed before the 20th century. Uh, So we can't uh, really blame them on the industrial revolution. It's just that we don't have the sort of detailed clinical records that we have uh, from 20th century medicine. But if you do read in um, uh, our old writings, uh, descriptions of people's various illnesses, um, they can be ascribed to, to cancer, heart disease or diabetes. So, they're, um, so these are diseases of degeneration uh, that we have lived with for centuries uh, <clears throat> as to uh, mitochondria, yes, um, we do know that uh, uh, degeneration of mitochondria certainly does cause disease. There are some genetic diseases where people are born with um, a, a, a defect in the in the way their mitochondria work. Um, as to whether it's related to the electricity that um, is in in our society now there's um there's no way there's no real evidence for that um because the if you go down to the microscopic size in cells and i mean the really sort of nanotechnology size the um uh molecular size yes our, our cells actually do work by electricity Um, Our cells, we we pump um, charged ions in and out of our cell membranes. That's how a lot of our our cells work, our our brain cells work by electricity, by um, charged particles being pumped in and out or either side of our cell membranes. So electricity is really important for life down at that um, nanotechnology um, level. But, in terms of the link to cancer, heart, disease, and diabetes, uh, a lot of those uh, a lot of the causes of those are mutations, and we're gradually getting to um, uh, pick these out now that we can do whole genome studies very quickly. And they're part of the general degeneration that's happened ever since um, the fall of man ever since God's judgment. Again, it's the good to bad to worse history of the world. We started out with no mutations. So in the very good world, there would have been no cancer, no heart disease and no diabetes. And it will be like that in the new heavens and the new earth when everything is made new and there is no more curse. But at the moment, yes, all of those things, we, we know they are happening, they are increasing because the mutation rate is increasing, which is just part of that general degeneration. Uh, I'm sorry, that we're, we're all going downhill individually and as an entire species and as an entire world. Uh, so Let it's, me it's add to what good. Diana fact, said We started there. out good, and we're going downhill.
3: Let me add to what Diana said there, because mm. my grandchildren find it really hard to believe uh, what it was like when I was a boy. Now, yes, I've just turned 75 and I know I'm still good looking and all of those sort of things. I love to believe that. But uh, you'll find that when I was first asked, you know, the show and tell where they take you along to school and you have to tell everybody that your granddad and what it was like when you were a kid, they find it really hard to believe that you had no electricity. Yes, Australia when I was a boy. You had no delivered water. You had a kerosene lamp you did not have electricity for a refrigerator. Yes, we had meat in a meat safe. We didn't have it frozen. We, if we wanted anything, we bought an ice block from the ice block factory sort of 10 kilometers away and hoped it survived getting there. So you'll find that there was no such possible effect from electricity even when I was a boy and my grandmother who sort of took a stroke in front of me when I was five years of age. So I was introduced to death very early and i'm grateful for that because i began to realize that life does have a terminal point and we need to deal with beyond life into death and to eternity i'm sure that's one we think god used to get me saved i realized how serious it was she had no electricity at all uh, my children's great grandmother i interviewed her when she was a hundred and they didn't even have cars right they went by coach by, by horse and buggy That's how they drove around in Australia Sorry I know England was way ahead of us And America too But that's what it was like in rural Australia So there's no possibility of this effect Occurring in Australia Up until the the mid-1900s But we knew about these diseases Because occasionally you'd have a dog And the dog would get, get skinnier and skinnier And you called it the wasting disease And the man who discovered insulin used dogs who showed the same symptoms as people my daughter deborah got diabetes and she wasted and wasted right and you saw ah there's a connection here and she was diabetic number one you know type one serious stuff and we found this because of similarities and yet my kids have grown up mostly with very minimal exposure to electricity so what diane said is absolutely right but on top of that you will find we have an increase decrease in genetic health increase in a lot of these diseases so be very careful what you attribute this to 5g may not be as serious as as what is claimed by its opponents but nevertheless the use of many of these things in our society is not helping us overall even though our technology is getting greater and greater there are more people suffering from many of these things, largely because the real history of the world is not evolution. It's good to bad to worse. Actually, you need to make sure you've got the next step covered. You need eternal life, which only Christ can give you, and He gives you a new body, and He gives you a new heavens and a new earth. And boy, does John McCoy need that, hmm. Joseph?
1: Uh, great stuff there. Uh, let's have another question, Sam. Let's uh, move on.
0: We've got a very, very quick question here, which I can probably answer. This is coming from Bramble, Matt. How did Noah have sons of a different race? Tune in next week.
3: Sam, <laughs> <laughs> that's the quality well, answer that really, really just, gets the people out there.
1: We will definitely be dealing with race next week. It'll either be, uh, uh, it'll either be uh, myself or John or something. We'll, do, we'll deal with it for sure. But can I just bring up a quick... Um, Question that goes off the back of that that I've just seen come through from Bramble Matt, which is uh, that's the wrong one. This is the right one. Um, why does variety in humans not equal speciation when animals look identical and be classified as a different species? And uh, he's also asked this question as well, which uh, comes into this whole thing as well. Why does variety in humans not equal species? Why don't animals have race? Well, I'm sorry, but animals do have race. Race is a scientific term. Now, when you're divvying up all of your animals into the Linnaean classification system, which was originally intended to be based on Scripture, because you will find that Linnaeus took straight out of the Bible words like genus. Now, in your English Bible, that word genus is translated to kind. Uh, In your uh, Latin Bible, it's the word genus. So when he was creating his... uh, um, Classification system, he took inspiration, if you like, straight out of scripture. Today, it's almost entirely viewed with an evolutionary perspective. So you need to bear that in mind. But you'll find that race is the smallest unit of classification within the Linnaean classification system. You find it in animals, you find it in plants, and you find it in humans. Let's use a really easy example that everybody can recognize Canis lupus, the dog right canis is your group your genus your kind lupus is your species but you can have a great dane and you can have a wolf and you can have a chihuahua and they're all actually the same uh species but a great uh, a gray wolf is uh, even though it's the same species as your little pug or your poodle the poodle and the pug are regarded a separate race canis lupus familiaris you've got a small unit of measurement. Now, what you're looking at here is a point when your genetics has become so incredibly bottlenecked, you are an incredibly unhealthy animal. I mean, you have got far, far, far less genetic information and genetic health if you're a pug than if you're a gray wolf. Okay, classic example in plants, one of my favorite types of plants. Whoops, that's my microphone gone over. I'll just hold it like this. Brassica Olocera. Now, Brassica Olocera is the species. Brassica is the kind, Oleracea is the species. And what you can find from Brassica Olocera is that you get a mutated version with a very, very large flower head and you call it broccoli. You can mutate the broccoli and turn it white so it's got no pigment and it's cauliflower. You can cause it to, you know, grow a big bulb and you call it a cabbage. You can breed it to grow lots of little leaves, and you call it kale. You can get Napoleon to march his armies through France and chop off all of the heads of the cabbages, so it forces them to produce little cabbages out of the stalks, and you call them Brussels sprouts. But the reality is, even though you've got all this variation, all these various races of Brassicarola oleracea, they're all still the same species. So let's put that into human context. In the beginning, God created one man, Adam. Out of Adam God created one woman Eve. Woman came out of man, one man, one woman. There's your basis for marriage, there's your basis for morality, and there you have the first two people. Scripture is clear that all people descended from that first man, Adam. Scripture is also clear that only descendants of Adam can actually be saved. Uh, So you've got a real important theological point there, particularly when you're bringing a saviour into account, because a saviour has to be related to you. So you have to make sure that Jesus Christ is also descended from Adam. That's what all the genealogies are there from. All right, you can go one step further because you find that when Adam was created, there was no such thing as race. Um, there was only one human being. You can't divide one into smaller units, right? You need to have more kids before you can start to do that. So you'll find that in the beginning there was no such thing as race. There was one man and there was one woman. Go forward a little bit in time and you find that despite the world populating and uh, you know, spreading out, you've had another bottleneck because you have a global flood. A flood which destroys all things and all creatures except for Noah and his wife now as three sons and their three wives. So you'll find that not only has your population gone back down to one, no sense of race here, but all of a sudden that one is divided into three, the three sons and their three wives. And there are then implications for the kinds of genetics that they are carrying. You find that the Tower of Babel, God confuses the languages, and you have 70 distinct people groups spread out into all the world 70 distinct people groups carrying 70 distinct versions of their genes and spreading out into the world and traveling out into the world and all of a sudden you find that you can have such a thing as race because your one has been divided into three and your three has been divided into 60 to 70 people groups Each carrying distinct genes, each interbreeding only really with themselves, spreading out into all the world, descending into different people groups, and all of a sudden you have a concept of race, a scientific concept of race. Now, does that mean that these races are from somebody other than Adam? No, all descended from Adam, all descended from Noah. Does it mean that some of these races are half human, half demon? No, we'll deal with that next week. Does that mean that some of these races, uh, you know, can't be saved? No, all descendants from Adam uh, have the potential to be saved through Jesus Christ. So you have to be really careful when you're talking about these kind of things. Understand what race actually means, because race has become a bit of a taboo word. Oh, well, there's only one race. Well, I'm sorry, at the beginning there was no such thing as race. You can't have one or many races. Uh, you've got to understand what the word actually means. You've got to get it into full context. You've got to understand the true history of world uh, of the world and the true history of the human uh, you know, people group uh, as described in, in Scripture so you can actually begin to make sense of all of this. John, I'll hand over to you for any more comments and Diane as well, but let me just say... Okay, well,
3: well perhaps you- it's uh, time... To tell people that if they want some of the answers like you've given or what uh, diane's given um they they can go to creationresearch.net click on q a and uh, then they'll get lots of questions there they can choose from and diane tell us a bit about the fact file as a resource
4: yes uh our newsletter that we send out uh, every two or three weeks and we've started making videos uh to to extend that All of the individual items that we report from the Science News, we file away on a separate website just called Creation Fact File. You can look that up or or there are links from our main site that go to it. And we file them away uh, as individual items so you don't need to know when they were sent out in the original newsletter. You can just do a keyword search and look for them so that if you are interested in human races or... um, or in uh, those uh, vegetables that Joseph was talking about. I remember we did do uh, a, an item on that because it came up in one of the science news reports. Uh, there's also one about the effect of rain on crop plants. I remember that. So you can look up all of those things, uh, just do a topical search and it will bring them up. So you don't need to know when it was originally sent out in the uh, in the newsletter. Uh, so go go to the Creation Research Fact file and you'll find hundreds and hundreds of these little reports just from the normal scientific news that's reported to everyone and it helps you understand what's being discovered and give you a biblical understanding of how it fits into the history of the world and how some things which are purported to be evolution are in fact very good evidence for the biblical history of the world of starting out good but going downhill
3: and uh, if you want to see more of Craig and his work with seahorses and his wife's work particularly you can see that on some of our videos which are now available as mp4s so -hmm. you download them you'll be blessed and you'll help our work as well cost wise and for those of you who've uh, sent donations thank you thank you thank you yes we're still trying to Mm -hmm. sum up enough for Joseph's new laptop and obviously a new microphone stand, he's belted the last one on the head. Uh, hopefully you will reconstruct that one. And uh, can I encourage you, uh, go to our websites and have a look at the research one where you will see exclusively all the research on the strata machine. And if you're down the Gold Coast in Australia, I'm at a Gold Coast Baptist on Sunday night, tomorrow night here in Australia. And I'd encourage you, come and join us at 6 o'clock and you'll get a big picture on Noah's flood. What's used to hide it from public sight and we'll probably sneak in why did China sell wheat to uh, Russia. Uh, and, oh actually, that's Mr Putin, and we've done all of that. That's being broadcast. When are you going to broadcast that little half hour, Joseph?
1: That's going out tonight. It'll be going out around half an hour after we finish this broadcast, mm. so do catch that. It should be good. Um, we're coming up to the end of our time. We've got about five or six more minutes. Let's have one final question, mm-hmm. and um, we'll, we'll go there. How about this one that I've just seen a little bit further up because it relates to what we were talking about earlier? Um Word translated as earth in these chapters is translated as land on at least a thousand other occasions in Scripture, which is easily verifiable by checking under land in a strong concordance. Um, If I could uh, give one quick comment, John, and then I'll hand it over to you. We're talking about, uh, of course, was the flood global and all of that. You'll find that there are two main words used for land in Scripture. There's arets and there's tevet. Now, you want to be looking at the word "aret" because that's the one which is used in the context of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, where it's used over 90 times, right? So it's, uh, it's quite a common word to be used in the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, Tavet is used later on in the Psalms, all right? Um, over 90 uses in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, 87.5% uh, of the times that it's used, it is always global in occurrence, uh, you'll find a smaller amount of times it can be used to reference just land. Point in case, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz, heavens and the earth. There's no denying the context there. We're talking about the entire globe, the entire planet. But later on, on day three, where it says, and God called the dry land erets." Ah, all of a sudden, we're not talking about the whole globe. We're not talking about the whole planet. We're talking about a portion of the planet. We're talking about a portion of dry land. The dry land was the arets, the Earth. The water was called the seas. So you're right that uh, this can be used to describe a portion of land, but it can also be used to describe the entire planet. How do we tell the difference? The answer is key, context. right. There's no denying that the word arets is being used as the global context when we're talking about God created the heavens and the earth. There's no denying that the word arets is being used in a local piece of land context uh, or or a portion of land context when it says that the waters, uh, the dry land appeared and he called it the earth. All right, let's apply this to Noah's flood and I'll make two points and then hand it over to John. first one is you find clearly from all of the context that it was global in its uh, entirety. Um, the very fact that Noah took birds on board the Ark is evidence that it was global because we have birds today that migrate from the North Pole to the South Pole and back again, right? Just because they like a bit of sun. So you have more than enough capability of actually moving birds by themselves and moving animals through migration. So the fact that Noah had to take even all these animals on board, including birds, shows you that it was global. The fact that Noah didn't just move over to a portion of land which wasn't going to be flooded also shows that it's global. The fact that it talks about covering the highest mountains shows that it's global, because by the time you get that high, you've got a worldwide flood anyway. But remember the word we used earlier, marbul? The Lord sits over the marbul, the flood. John explained earlier this word marbul is clearly in context of talking about Noah's flood so if you want to say well hang on a minute God only sits over a small portion of the earth and not the whole earth you're questioning his power you're also questioning his authority and remember the promise that God gave to Noah at the end of the flood I will never flood the earth in this way again Mm. now John I know that you've had many many floods in Australia over the years so what you've got to be careful of doing is calling God a liar which is exactly what you're doing if you're trying to say that the flood was only local in extent. So, John, any comments from you?
3: Well, number one, it's a good opportunity for commercial. So if you haven't yet got our Bible study, our walk through Genesis with Jesus, because that deals with much of what Joseph just Mm -hmm. said, you will find that a blessed encouragement for those of you who are just sort of beginning to read Genesis and take it seriously uh i guess i've only got time for one or two little points here if you want to expand into what joseph said you've heard me quote genesis chapter one the first bit many many times in hebrew beresheth bara elohim in the beginning beresheth created he a male verb god right uh, and god is a plural it ends with i am okay now we've spoken on that quite a bit of times but the next little bit is ha mayim the heavens a plural and don't be surprised later on you learn there's a first heavens a second heavens a third heavens mayim the heavens the, eretz, the earth okay now the point we've made over and over again is in language it doesn't matter what language you're talking about and i'm always grateful for the two hebrew linguists that i got to take me through the basics of hebrew when you're looking at a word it doesn't matter what language it's in. The first time it appears, the author has the right to define it. The first time it appears, if it's a noun or a naming word, it is always literal. It cannot be anything else until it becomes commonly used. So the word earth that appears first has to be a literal earth. By the time you get further down, when the earth that the people of Israel walk in obviously isn't the whole earth. They only went into the land of Canaan. So you'll find that the word gets smaller and smaller as you use it, but it's still communicable. You know exactly what it means because you knew exactly what it meant the first time it was used. So when you have a look at Genesis chapter one, verse one, it is undeniable. The only meaning it can have, as Joseph said in English as well as in Hebrew, refers to the planet Earth that he created in the beginning. Even if it wasn't showing up on that first day, you'll find it's covered by water and the dry land which is also um, the, the Haretz or Vaharetz and the earth, right, you'll find is a literal thing, but now a smaller area than the whole earth. I think that's probably as much as we've got time for, Joseph. And again, use Strong's. Can I encourage you, get your Blue Letter Bible, which, as we always tell people, starts with King James for one reason. We've had 400 years to write commentaries on King James. You can't beat it in terms of the commentaries and all sorts of things, and it will take you to every other translation. You can judge it for how good or how bad it is, and all the keywords in Greek or in Hebrew, you'll be able to cross-reference them, trace them as easy as one thing. Come to our website, creationresearch.net. I guess, Sam, one thing from you. You set up a merch shop last week. Finish off by telling us how folks can find things on that and encourage us, because we get a percentage, I believe, of anything sold on that site, correct?
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. So I'm going to stick up a caption now uh, for people to grab some merchandise. Uh, We've got, well, as some of you may know, we've done a whole new rebrand of the Creation Research logo. So you can grab some merchandise there. It's got T-shirts, it's got mugs, it's got, um, I believe, some... Uh, stickers on there, um, all sorts of things, really, really high quality stuff. And we get a percentage of all the sales that are made uh, and that will get poured directly back into the ministry. So it's another way of helping us um, when you're out and about, you can represent creation research and people just, oh, that's a cool logo. What's that? You can say, well, come check out creation conversations and creation research. Uh, So just follow that link on the screen, uh, head over to the merch store, grab yourself something and uh, look cool. Yeah, look really cool.
3: And the reason we understand merch is we knew the first word merchandise was something literal. Sorry, I <laughs> had to sneak that in there. All right, um, Joe. back to you.
0: I, if, I could, if I could just interject, Joe, um, we have had some donations. Um, oh,
1: I'll go for it. Yes, before we finish. Uh,
0: my computer is frozen, though.
1: Okay, fine. Uh, I will, I will, no, I hang on.
0: No, no, hang on. Oh, it might be, might be good. Here we go. Yeah, I've got it right. Okay, here we go. So, we have had a donation from George Bond for 20 Aussie buckaroos. Uh, this was earlier on the night, and he said uh, that deserves a donation. So, thank you so much for that. God bless you. Had a donation from Brandon as well for uh, $19.99 uh, US buckaroos. Here's some more help keep it up. We've had some more. If I scroll. Really quickly down <laughs> to try and sneak this in. Uh, we've had um, $19.99 US dollars uh, from uh, Redefined Living for the computer. Thanks, fellows. May God continue to bless you. God bless you, mate. Thank you so much. And uh, that's it. There we go.
1: Great stuff. Thank you all very much for the donations. We really do appreciate it. Um, We've had so many questions for this Q&A. It's been wonderful. And I know there are questions that we didn't get to. I saw a question about uh, dinosaurs earlier and all sorts. So um, we will keep hold of your questions. We will use them as we go through uh, with our broadcasts. If there's not a lot of questions come through, we'll use them or we will store them all up and we will use them at our Q&A session. Just to give you a, a reminder that what we do is we hold a series of these creation conversations and then we finish with a Q&A and then we start the next week with a special topic, of course. We've finished with a Q and A uh, session today, so our next week is our special birthday celebrations, and we are really looking forward to that. So uh, make sure you tune in for that. We've got some great stuff planned and some great ideas. So uh, tune into all that. We look forward to it continue to support if you can all the details are in the description and remember we have got our ukraine special news broadcast going out in just under 30 minutes uh, about 25 minutes or so and sometime early next week we will be having our next creation research evidence news come out with diane as well so um thank you all very much everybody uh goodbye and god bless any last words from the panel
3: i just pray for dry
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh we need that as well trust me. All right. God bless everybody. Goodbye. We
4: will catch <laughs> you later. <right> Goodbye. <laughs>